I'm Sime Usiger. I'm Joyce Miller. And, and this, this is Curtain Call. We're here again with news of upcoming shows, the coolest music and culture from Reno to Davis. And this month we'll preview a new art exhibit at the Crocker, talk to the folks at a new theater company, and we'll kick off a new season of music festivals. It must be spring. Here on Curtain Call, we do favor Americana and Roots music, so let's start with this song. I want to sing that rock and roll. I want to electrify my soul. Everybody's been making a shout so big and loud, drowning me out. I want to sing that rock and roll. The Brothers Comatose, led by Ben and Alex Morrison, Petaluma Boys, off a new album. And the Brothers with their brand of hard-rocking bluegrass, and they won me over years ago when they did a tour of North Bay clubs completely on horseback. I think of the Broco less as cowboys and more as a part of a newish generation of West Coast roots musicians like the T-Sisters yeah. and A.J. Lee and Molly Tuttle, walking in the footsteps of people like Lori Lewis and Joe Craven. Uh, Brothers Comatose play tonight, May 5th, at the Miner's Foundry with Hattie Craven, daughter of Joe, opening. Then they're at the Wildflower Music Festival, May 6th in Chico, along with the very funky Bay Area band Combrio and others. And then the Brothers Comatose play two nights at the Grove House in Mariposa, May 11th and 12th. Also short notice, but the Mondavi Center is hosting one of America's great pianists, Laura Downs. She's made a name for herself playing the music of neglected black composers, including Scott Joplin, as we can hear. We're listening to the prelude for Joplin's long-neglected opera, Tremonitia, and Downs is joined by the New York Times columnist John McWhorter to talk about Joplin and play his music. It sounds both enlightening and fun. I know that doesn't sound possible, uh, but it is. Laura Downs and John McWhorter are at the Mondavi Center tonight, May 5th. But maybe this music is more your style. I drove an hour and a half, two hours back. I even got a sunburn for that boy. No one told me not to ever drive back. No one even made a noise. is so good. 
Skating Polly is a family affair. Oklahoma City natives Kelly Drew Mayo and brother Curtis Lee Mayo with step-sibling Peyton McKenna Big Horse switching off on guitar, bass, and drums. And they're definitely part punk and part classic rock trio. Here they're just blazing away on a new song called Hickey King about a messy breakup. It's off a new album out next month. Skating Polity was completely new to me, and I was interested to hear that Xene Cervinka of X has been a big champion and mentor of theirs, which tells you something about the sound. It's somehow melodic and hard-edged at the same time. Skating Polly is at Harlow's in Sacramento tomorrow, May the 6th, and they're back in our area at the Holland Project in Reno on May 25th. In the late 1940s, abstract expressionism dominated the art world, especially in New York. But here on the West Coast, a few Bay Area painters dared to challenge that rule. They painted from life, portraits, male and female nudes, still lifes, which doesn't sound radical. Uh, Now Sacramento's Crocker Museum is celebrating two of these radicals, Paul Warner and William Theophilus Brown. They were both gay men, longtime partners, and leading figures in the style known as Bay Area Figuration. And Cy and I visited the Crocker a few days ago for a preview of a show of Wanner's and Brown's work with the museum's chief curator, Scott Shields. Scott, it's so odd that painters working in representational art would be considered radical. How did that come about? Abstract expressionism uh, really took over by the late 1940s, early 1950s. And if you weren't working as an abstractionist, you were considered you know, not avant-garde. And it wasn't really until this group of Bay Area people um, started to go back to representation, but through the lens of abstract expressionism, that that began to change. David Park, Richard Diebenkorn, Elmer Bischoff, Paul Warner, Theopolis Brown, and a bunch of others started to return to the figure in mass in, in California. And um, at first, it was really controversial because it was just considered nuts that they would do that. Well, and it limited their commercial appeal. It did. You know, when when Diebenkorn switched to figuration, um, one of his clients said, what have you done to the value of my paintings? But it ended up creating a new style that was really more avant-garde than abstract expressionism. And Warner and Brown began themselves in a kind of abstract art. Uh, and, and we're just looking right here as the first painting we look at as we walk into the, to the gallery here. Tell me uh, about this. It's like a, a seascape of some kind, but it's all wild brush strokes. And- yeah, it's, the painting is called North Sea Coast, and it, it looks very abstract, but there is landscape elements in it. And it was done in around 1954. By Paul Warner. By Paul Warner, and it um, is emblematic of where he's headed. And one of the things that I tried to show with this exhibition was that Paul and Theopolis were both first-generation abstract expressionists. And they met, Paul Warner and Theophilus Brown met at UC Berkeley. They were graduate students when they met, and they were in the same two classes together. It didn't go well at first because Paul was from very reduced family, their circumstances, they were poor, and Bill's family was very wealthy. His father worked for John Deere Company, and Paul thought that Theopolis was a snob. And, and Bill was a snob, actually, at that point in time. He, he thought pretty highly, he, and he knew everybody. He had just been in Europe, and he was hanging out with not only artists, but he was good friends with Stravinsky's, and he had hung out with Picasso, and, you know, he was just had an amazing life, and when he was there one day, he said, you know, I was, 
orbiting around all these very famous people, but I didn't know what I could do myself. And he said I needed to separate myself, and that's when he went back to school. Well, there's 75 works, and we can't talk about all of them, but, but I really want us to spend a few minutes with a Picnic on the Grass, Déjeuner sur l'herbe, which is a, a tribute to Edouard Manet's work, which was scandalous because it had naked women and clothed men at a picnic. Uh, take us to that painting, okay. and let's talk about it. So tell us about this painting with... Uh, a woman bathing naked and, and all these folks, uh, these clothed guys and another naked woman on the grass and a dog, uh, two dogs. <laughs> Late in his career, Paul and Theopolis moved into a place in San Francisco called the Towers. They lived in separate apartments, but before that, Paul had been doing very big still life paintings, but suddenly um, he had to work smaller. One of the things that he did was look at old masters, and in this case Manet, but he looked at Cezanne a lot, um, and then sort of reinterpreted it through a Bay Area perspective. This one is a little unusual because he more often did nude men than women. This one happens to include two women because Manet's painting included women. But he's also added this Bay Area element of these gentlemen out in, out, outside with their dogs, and the picnic is very contemporary, and just changed it up a lot but he did many scenes of, of people kind of out in nature late in his career, um, oftentimes with their dogs. Sometimes the dogs steal the spotlight because they're so charming. And there's a strong element of animals that run through the show, and that's because both artists really loved animals. And they had a lot of pets. There's a painting of their cats in the show. And it's just so colorful. It's warm, and it's got this beautiful light, and it's very spring, the way we feel right now at this time of year. There's a charm, in, especially in Paul's work, that runs through. I mean, he was, he was the nicest human being on the planet. Really, really sweet, sweet gentleman. And super shy. And his modesty, I think, comes through in his artwork. I ended up meeting with him about two weeks before he died. And I didn't, you know, nobody had any idea because he wasn't really sick. You know, he's just elderly. And he was pulling out drawers and drawers of watercolors and drawings. And I said, well, someday when these are all in museums, Paul. And he says, do you really think they'll all be in museums? And he was just so humble. So we're walking over to a piece that is early in the career of Theophilus Brown. Tell us about the one you've chosen. What's it? It's called football painting. Football painting number two. So after he came back from Europe, he ended up in New York and he mostly worked from the New York Times and he would look at black and white images and then he would turn them into these abstract paintings that are Bay Area figurative but abstract at the same time. He said, I like the crunch of bodies. He also didn't care a bit about football. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what plays are going on. He's putting the uniforms on the wrong team, but they make beautiful paintings. The Browns paintings seem a bit more Edward Hopper than David Hockney, you know, at least. Uh, but he did a picture of naked swimmers too, I guess. You know, the, one of the things that I didn't get in the book and I really wished I had was uh, David Hockney came to Southern California and it was when Paul and Theopolis were living in Southern California. And Paul and Theopolis had both done swimming pool paintings already. And David Hockney hadn't done his first swimming pool painting until after he <laughs> met them. And so I thought, hmm, it's not always the more famous artist influencing the other artists, it's sometimes the other way around. How did um, being a longtime gay couple inform their art? 
they were pretty out to their friends even in the 1950s, which is really early, even in California, because when they were in San Francisco, there were some really hard moments going on in the city, and they were trying to purge San Francisco of all, all the gay bars, and they were trying to, they were saying Sacramento's become a mecca for gay people, and they were trying to eradicate that. So they got out pretty quickly after that and moved to Southern California. I don't know if it's a direct cause and effect, but I think it factored in. Paul didn't get a teaching job once because it was he was outed to the administration. Their subject matter, I think, did hurt their saleability. Male nudes don't sell well, and they were told that, but they kept painting them anyway. But they've gotten short shrift art historically, too, for their importance, I think. It's just such a charming show and, and a reminder that, that modern art doesn't have to be daunting or unfathomable. Or unhappy. Yeah. I mean, there's a melancholy that runs through some of the paintings, but there's a lot of happiness and joy in these paintings, too. Is that partly because they were happy together? I think so, although they, you know, they said it was always a challenge, you know, as most couples have, have their children. It wasn't always a perfect relationship, but they said they, they had become each other's family, which was really more important than, than anything else. That's the Crocker's chief curator, Scott Shields, who assembled the show Breaking the Rules, Paul Warner and Theophilus Brown. One of the nice things we learned from Shields is that the Crocker handled the sale of the artist's estate, and some of the proceeds created a fund to support emerging and LGBTQ artists. Breaking the Rules continues at the Crocker through August 27th. Definitely worth seeing. Oakland's fantastic Negrito. He's won three Grammy Awards for Best Blues Album, and he writes the most soulful, thoughtful, and politically deep songs. Drifting away, couldn't find a place to stay. Walking in the footsteps of it all. Drifting away, couldn't find a place to stay. Walking in the footsteps of the Lord. Of the Lord. This brand new song, Grandfather Courage, is a kind of sequel uh, to Fantastic DeGrito's uh, album of 2022, White Jesus, Black Problems. And with lyrics inspired by Negrito's discovery that his seventh generation grandparents were a white Scottish indentured servant and an enslaved black man in Virginia who were in a common law marriage, which was ridiculously hard to do and illegal at the time. Fantastic DeGredo plays May 9th at Harlow's in Sacramento. He's a genius. Here at Curtain Call, we love musical theater. I am not always on time. Please don't expect that from me. I will be late, but if you can just wait, I will make it eventually. 
So no surprise, we were thrilled when Lyric Rose Theater, a brand new stage company, did a rousing production of Sondheim's Into the Woods last January. And now Lyric Rose is producing the musical The Last Five Years by Jason Robert Brown. Larry McRae and David Endicott Hicks were rehearsing their new show the last five years a few days ago. They portray a couple in a five-year relationship from their first meeting to the end of their marriage with a few intriguing twists. David Endicott Hicks, with that beautiful voice, is both star and artistic director for Lyric Rose. He's done Broadway shows and opera, and he works a lot with Judy Merrick, a member of the Lyric Rose board and co-director of the last five years. Merrick and Endicott Hicks are recent transplants from New York City, but Hicks has a local connection. He sang in the chorus and graduated from Nevada Union High School. We talked to these two theater nerds in the studios at KVMR. You met each other up here, I believe, and you were both had been involved with theater in New York, and you said what this tiny little town needs is still another theater company. I mean, it's a very ambitious thing. So I think the, the first thing to talk about is that Judy and I were both in New York at the same time, most likely at the same theaters, most <laughs> likely auditioning for the same shows, most likely, you know, crossing paths, but we never actually spoke to each other, which is really funny. Um, so it, how we came up here and all of a sudden it's like, oh, hello, my people are here, my people. Um, and, and actually in New York City, there are hundreds of theater companies. So to me, one or two theater companies is not that much. Honestly, this community up here is very, very open to performing arts. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be fantastic. And honestly, it, it has been. And also, it's speaking now to um, the people with uh, who are uh, in charge of and working with Sierra Stages and Upright Theater, um, who cats. just did Fuddy Mirrors and Cats. And cats. Um, but everybody's helping each other out. We're borrowing things for the last five years from well, Sierra Stages. And Judy, Judy Merrick was in uh, The Moors recently right. at Sierra Stages. Yeah. What, what I'll say is on any given night in this town, there's multiple places to see music, right? So it makes it a destination spot for music. We can make Nevada City with how it's growing and, and, it had, and grew during the pandemic and people from the Bay. We can make Nevada City a destination spot for theater. And when, when you cultivate more theater, you have more theater goers. And we already noticed that immediately from Into the Woods of like, when's the next one? And also there's a lot of artists up here mm -hmm. and there's only so many parts in a show. And what I've been getting from like, so we're audition, we just had our audition for Clue, which is going Clue on stage, um, which will be at the Nevada Theater in June. Two um, weeks after last five years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. That's, That's a fast turnaround. Yeah. For that. 
that show, right? <laughs> Again, you know, on the New York side of things, being a professional actor in New York, you have two weeks to to learn your show and then you go on. You know, what I'm getting from the actors who are coming into audition is like, I'm so happy there's another show because we're used to one or two shows a year. I honestly see there's a lack of opportunities for the amount of talented actors that we have up here, whether they're children or whether they're adults. And was that one of your ambitions to come back to the place where you went to high school and start a theater company? I think it's more of a dream, right? And so um, I always loved living in Nevada City. And I I say I grew up here, but I was really only here for high school, Um, uh, born in Fresno, and then we moved up here. Compared to what I was getting to what I got up here, there was just no comparison. The training. So it was always a dream of mine to be here in this community that I love. And and dreams are coming true. And uh, Judy, how did you end up in Grass Valley in Nevada City area? I'm still figuring that out. I was in New York for about 13 years, and my brother moved here from the Bay, and he owns a Lixart in town. And so I would come out here in the summer times and fell in love with the Yuba River. I got a wolf dog. My mother passed and kind of needed to, wanted to be near family and came out here. You know, I thought I'd never leave New York. I'm like, I'm going to never even leave the island of Manhattan. Like, same, <laughs> same. I thought I just never would. And somehow some things shifted. I had a, I had a pretty big theater company there that kind of got separated and was going to just come here for a little bit and possibly pack up and move down to L.A. And then COVID happened. And then out of COVID, met David and was kind of like, maybe this feels like not safe, but but home. Both of you are deeply devoted to theater and musical theater. Uh, Judy, why don't you tell me first, and then David, so what is it that gives you goosebumps about this stuff? Why does it that makes you wake up in the morning and you think, I have to do theater? It's definitely my happy place. As a performer, it's kind of where I feel like I fit in. It was a place that in high school was where you found your people. So that specialness that happens in one night, I call it giving birth every night, right? (laughs) To give birth to this beautiful thing that lives, that's going to be different the next night and the next night. And there's something really special and sacred about that, like a church experience, like, like something close to being connected to God. And even playing the granny into the woods, there's a magical energy that's an exchange from the audience to you. And, and going forward, um, as you're getting older, now being able to teach children that and offer that same place for them and watch them grow before your eyes is really incredible because I have those teachers in my life that touched me and, and change, changed the way that I, the confidence I had in myself. I think theater also really brings a community within that play and, and how and the responsibility you have to show up for that family and show up for that um, that show that um, despite whatever might be going on in your personal life you you show up to that rehearsal you show up to that show and you create something together and it feels like magic and david so Judy is directing Fantastic Mr. Fox as well at Seven Hills right now um, through Lyric Rose Theater Company. We're we're doing enrichment for several schools in the community now. And I am actually music directing with Carrie McRae, who is my co-star in the last five years. We're doing James and the Giant Peach Jr. at Grass Valley Charter School right now. Why I'm bringing that up, the, the James that we cast is actually the son of a good friend of mine from high school. And he is wonderful. His name is Finley. I mean, it brings me to tears watching him sing. And just the amazing 
voice that comes out of him, the amazing performance. And it goes for several other people in the cast as well. And they haven't had a show at the Grass Valley Charter in, in years. And part of that is because of COVID. It's, it's one of those things that that brings me joy. That gives me goosebumps. That brings tears to my eyes. David Endicott Hicks is co-starring with Carrie McRae in the musical The Last Five Years with Judy Merrick and her partner Sky Seals co-directing. It's at the Center for the Arts in the Center's Black Box Theater starting May 6th and continuing through May 14th. Sitting on the front porch, face toward the hill, trail of years behind me and ain't I had to kill. One glass of whiskey to ease my mind. Taking too far away to find Staring up at the mountain Like to drive me mad The mountain never changes So I guess I've ever had One glass of whiskey To ease my mind And another one to take it Too far away to find Robbie Folks has been called the modern-day Roger Miller, and even though he mostly dwells in the land of Americana and alt-country, he ranges far beyond that and has been known to cover Michael Jackson and Beyonce and ABBA. He's a highly underrated guitar picker and a songwriter who dabbles in both snark and sentimentality. Yeah, Folks will be at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley on May 18th and Sacramento's Goldfield Trading Post on May 19th. The prolific and genre-defying Los Angeles artist Sonny War was set to play on the main stage at the Strawberry Music Festival last year, but illness forced her to cancel. So we're so glad she made it this year. She writes great lyrics, as in this song about Mother Earth. Strawberry is returning for a second season to the Nevada County Fairgrounds with Sunny Ward, Della May, the Yonder Mountain String Band, A.J. Lee and Blue Summit, and about 20 other acts, including local heroes Achilles Wheel and Broken Compass. Sure, Strawberry is a music festival, but for lots of folks, it's more important as a gathering of the Strawberry Nation, those who practice a form of conscious comportment known as the Strawberry Way. It is like a gigantic family, and it's kind of like going to a high school reunion or something every time, every year. Malene Hazel is a longtime volunteer who's attended the festival ever since its second year in 1983, when it was still at Camp Mather. You see all these old friends and their kids and the camaraderie and just sitting around jamming, listening to them jam. It, it's just a combination of everybody coming together and who shared a love of music, which transcended a lot of other things. In our lives, I mean, my husband was a cop. You wouldn't expect him to be sitting there next to somebody smoking a joint, (laughs) which they weren't supposed to be doing back then, but they did it anyway, and, and we just didn't care about that kind of stuff. So there's this phrase that you always hear that everybody should practice the strawberry way. What is the strawberry way? It's like the golden rule. You treat everyone as if the way you would like to be treated. And in return, they're kind to you. When you meet somebody, it's people you met two days ago, you're hugging when they're leaving because you're camping next to new people. You get to know them because 
somebody's run out of pancakes. <laughs> they invite their neighbors over for breakfast. Uh, it's just a big shared experience. And then one thing that brings it all together is the love of the music. Strawberry has maintained its warm, fuzzy vibe since it started as a bluegrass festival in 1982. That's why I was surprised and heartened to see on the bill the Rainbow Girls, whose luscious harmonies belie their outspoken, quite political fierceness. I love you like I love white supremacists and people who still steal from small businesses. Yeah, that is some song. The Rainbow Girls are one of the bands kicking off the first of four days for the Strawberry Music Festival, Thursday, May 25th through May 29th. And the best part, even if you can't get out to the fairgrounds, you can listen to the Strawberry Music Festival live right here on KVMR-FM or on the World Wide Web. Our time is up. And you can relive this awesome show by downloading our podcast at kvmr.org. Joyce is off for the summer, lucky woman. But I'll be back in June with another show. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I'm Joyce Miller. I'm Cy Musiker. And And this this is Curtain Call, coming to you from KVMR-FM, Nevada City.